Ladies, gents, and germaphobes, I want to welcome you to season four of How Not to Start a Damn Brewery. In 2019, I wrote a book to exercise the demons I'd picked up over a long decade of owning, brewing, and operating a brewery in Texas with my beautiful wife. That book is the same name as this podcast, and you really should pick it up on Amazon. Even brewers and bartenders can afford 18 bucks. What you're about to put in your ears is the only podcast that tells the truth in craft beer. I interview dead and dying breweries to learn what went wrong. I talk with breweries I think have a unique position in the marketplace to find out what they did right. I talk to distributors because they're a big part of the worst part of this industry. And I'm even sticking a microphone in the faces of cider, spirits, and mead makers. And yes, I do talk a lot of shit and piss off more than a few people in this industry. But I'm happy to be the crap beer pariah, trademark, because I'm here for one reason and one reason only, to make you better in your careers. My guests and I want happiness and financial success for each of you. We want you to avoid the mistakes we made. And since no one else has the stones to share how to do that with you, it has fallen to us. And trust me, we are up to the task. So sit back, listen in, and let us teach you how not to start a damn brewery. You know, they always say you have to have money to make money, and I always thought that was bullshit. But until you've got a business and you're trying to figure out how to pay the rent, how to buy grain, and how to do all this stuff, and you're waiting on money to come in, unless you're sitting on a stack of cash, this, this business is hard. Those of us who pay attention to this podcast know that the future is uncertain for the craft beer industry overall. But the beer people in Abilene, Texas are feeling that bubble burst maybe just a little bit more than most cities. See, in the first two months of 2023, Abilene lost half of its breweries one in January and the other one in February. They had both fought to stay afloat for years, and even knowing the other was leaving, neither felt the market in Abilene could support them. I caught up with Jeff from Pappy Slocum and James from Sockdolliger Brewing, and they agreed to do a collaboration interview. So they had both experienced struggle, strain, and eventual collapse of their breweries. They both cited a market that is unsustainable and distributors that didn't put their needs first. And they both wished the next generation of brewery owners the best even if they weren't sure how in the hell they'd get it. But maybe most importantly, both Jeff and James seemed surprisingly at peace with their decision to permanently lock their brewery doors and saunter away from the businesses they built from the ground up, even after describing them as their babies. I believe the story of Abilene's craft beer collapse of 2023 is a harbinger of what's to come in the next few years in the craft beer industry. Listen in and let me know if you agree. So do you ride motorcycles? Because if you do, you want the sickest gear on the planet. And SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com is the site for you. Break free from the pack with your kick-ass style and design that is as subtle as a sucker punch. When you're out on the open road, don't let anyone confuse you with your grandpa. Project an attitude that's all your own. With their signature style and performance, Simpson sets the standard of looking cool while providing superior comfort and protection. Authenticity counts, and there are many helmet brands out there, but there is only one Simpson. You ride a killer bike, don't you? Why sell for a boring helmet? Pick your poison at SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com. Badass riders don't settle for anything less. See for yourself on Instagram at Simpson underscore motorcycle underscore helmets. Thanks for riding with us. We'll see you out there. All right, so Jeff, James, I want to thank you for uh, both talking today. Thanks for sharing everything that you know, and thanks most of all, for giving what a lot of our listeners don't know is a uh, good old West Texas fuck about helping everyone be better in their uh, careers today, which is my weird way of welcoming you to the show. So welcome you both to the show today. Thanks, Thanks man. Nice to talk to you, Kelly. I like to joke around that we're doing something a little bit different today, but I don't really have like a format, I guess. So maybe it's not different, but I am uniquely excited about what we're doing. So 
to kind of set it up, obviously you guys each own your own breweries. I guess, James, technically you still do uh, own your own brewery. One of you guys closed, the other is about to close. And I was really intrigued about the story because both of you sort of cited just the overall feel and, and situation of the business at large and maybe even Abilene specifically. So I'm just really curious about getting into two stories that all kind of converge into one big story. But before we do that, I kind of want to know who you guys are. So for no reason other than that you're at the bottom of my screen, Jeff, let's start with you. What? Uh, how'd you get in this industry? Who, who were you before? Who are you? I don't know who I am. I don't know how I got in this business. That's just dumb luck, I guess. But I actually I started off as a home brewer, a lot like like everybody else in this business started off got out of the military back in the early 2000s i went through the police academy felt like i needed another career after the military so <laughs> did that homebrewed for 20 some odd years and then uh decided when it got time to retirement that i would open a brewery and so that same partner that i started homebrewing with was one of the two partners that i chose to, to open up happy slocum did a lot of competition brewing back in the day, as a lot of homebrewers do. Came back from the military, couldn't find the beers that I drank when I was over in Germany. So bought a Mr. Beer kit, same story a lot of guys have, and then got to where I was buying my own equipment. Started off saying, I'm just going to make extract beers, and then I don't have any need to do all grain beers. And next thing you know, I'm building a mash ton. And you know how the story goes. That, that's yeah. that's us. Most homebrewers, you know, brew something different all the time. Did you? Were you one of those guys that would like yeah. take a recipe and beat the shit out of it until you dominated it? Or yes. Yeah. Yep. Yes. Uh, we heavies were always my thing. That was my that was my kryptonite. I, I loved the style. Every one I made was not quite right in my opinion. So I would make them, tweak them, make them again, and I just in my in my mind I just never nailed the one that I really wanted. You know. So, but like most home brewers, I hardly ever brewed the same thing exactly the same, and that carried over into the brewery. Uh, itself for a little bit until you realize, oh, shit, you know, people want consistency. They want the same recipe. They want it to taste the same every time. So that was hard for me to, to let go of that homebrew mentality whenever it came to, to actually making commercial beers. James, did you get a chance to try any of his homebrew? I feel like most of the recipes that y'all had on, on draft were, had to have been all homebrew recipes. Like the Hefeweizen with Richie's and I'm guessing McPappy's is that we have you're talking about. So yeah, I mean, in a way, but I wouldn't have had like homebrew, homebrew. He didn't have them at the house, but a lot of those carried through to whenever he, he and his guys started coming to the brewery. James, gave us a little bit of your history. Are you from Abilene? Did you grow up there? No, I'm from Savannah, Georgia. I moved to Abilene from Atlanta to get my master's. Met a girl and ended up staying here. Long story short, in between all that, I started homebrewing in college. Before we could buy beer, we were like, hey, we can make beer. So that's kind of when I started brewing and moved out here in graduate school after college. Uh, ended up working at a draft house called Barley Harbor's Draft House and running that place for a while. Met some of the home brew clubs out there. Like, but the first time I ever went, Jeff and them were the ones in charge of the home brew club. <laughs> I met some guys in kind of Blue and Humber in their, in their garage. After that, I worked for a distributor out here, Benny Keith Distributing, and distributed beer for a little while. And then seven years ago, seven and a half years ago is when me and the guys were like, hey, like, we, we want to do this. We want to open our own place. And all that, that was supposed to be in Abilene for two years. Uh, I've been here 13 now. Kind of evolved and it's been, it's been a long six years. Yeah. Well, so you moved there for graduate school. What What are you educated to be? <laughs> History teacher. That translates to beer about as well as anybody else's degree that's in our industry. So I wouldn't worry about it yeah. too much. It seems like a common theme. Even the people who went to school yeah. for brilliant, I'm not sure they're qualified to 
Yeah. yeah, unfortunately, I just had the Hartogs or Rich, Richard of the Hartogs on um, the episode I just released, and they had gone to Portland School for craft beer and you know learned the whole business side of it. And I had asked them a few questions, like some of the stuff they were teaching, I just completely disagree with. So unfortunately, I don't know how much going to school would have helped. Anyways, it is what it is. Yeah. Well, Jeff, so since you opened first, let's talk about that. I am uniquely fascinated that to be honest like even as i researched the guys that are still open and you know some of the ones that came after you guys apparently abilene is a very small community and what well, abilene brewing excuse me is a very small community and every single one of them points back to what you did in what 2014 is that when you opened yes yeah uh, june of 2014 like james said we myself and one of my partners ryan kokenauer we started the homebrew club we didn't have a homebrew club down here for a long long time so we started the homebrew club in 2007 Kind of got into the beer scene, you know, the craft beer stuff was non-existent here in Abilene. So, you know, we went and we talked to distributors. We kept telling them, hey, you need to get these beers. And, you know, they, we had St. Arnold's, we had other breweries in Texas, but we couldn't get their beer here in Abilene for the longest time. So we wound up going and clawing and scratching and asking all the, the retailers, you know, the liquor store owners, hey, can you order this? Well, our distributor says that nobody down here wants that. I was like, well, I'm asking for it. So can you can you do it? You know, we, we want this kind of thing. So. We were brewing at home, started a competition brewing. Like everybody else, we, we kept thinking, you know, we were winning some medals. We, we make good beer. And so we're like, you know, I think we're just going to do it. So I retired from the police department in October of 13. We had already found a building. We leased the building that we're still in till maybe the 1st of March. I think we'll have most of our stuff out of here, hopefully. So found the building. Uh, we were paying the lease on the building ourselves. We'd take turns. I have two partners. So every third month was your month to pay the rent, you know, so until we could get the build out done. Kind of one of them deals. We, we went to Texas Tech Small Business Association here and they drew up a business plan for us. And you Through know, the college? Yeah, yeah. Texas Tech University has a small business association office here in Abilene, and they, they do a wonderful job of putting together a business plan. Didn't cost us a dime. They do the market research. They put all that stuff in there. It was neat because some of the market research in there was, was weird. It didn't really apply to us, but it was Jester King. So they had the Jester King business plan in there as as industry information for our business plan. So like I said, it, it, it's all horseshit. Didn't really work anyway. Then none of the numbers ever, ever turned out exactly the way we expected, you know, so, but we had it, you know, we had these numbers that we thought were, okay, we can go to the bank and the bank's just going to loan us this money. We're going to do whatever. And, you know, we all have careers, so we have good credit ratings, you know, it's all this stuff, but man, you go to get a business loan from a bank. It, with no proven track record in any kind of business, in a business that has not existed in the town that you're in, they look at you like you got three heads, dude. I mean, it's terrible. Yeah, no, they're, they're happy to give you money as long as you put the cash up in front to make it buy a CD or yeah, something. Uh, yeah, if I had three quarters of it to put up, I wouldn't need you. I intentionally did not do a lot of consulting, but I do a little. And obviously, people ask me my advice. And this is one of those things I always recommend people do in the beginning is to go try to get a bank loan. Because even though the business model is typically 90% horseshit, it forces you to sit down and think about it and go through it and figure out what you might or may not be good at. Yeah. Someone should have yeah. asked me the same question. And unfortunately, James is going to get a little bit of a softball here because I'm going to ask you first. But at that point, how did you think you were qualified to open a business? And, and, and I did the same thing again. Did you just figure out, hey, we'll figure it out or you know, the model strong enough that 
crap beer is amazing. How could it lose? Like, I don't know. I think in my mind, that's what it was. I thought we, we were a no brainer, you know, cause we were in, in an industry that had never existed here. And I just knew that everybody in the world felt the same way I did about craft beer. <laughs> we had had a lot of good feedback, a lot of good stuff. But when you look at the scale of that, you know, you talk to a hundred people and they say, man, it's a great idea. Let's do it. You know? And then the other 127,000 people don't have a clue. You're even here. And they're still West Texas, Abilene, Texas is still a Coors Light, Bud Light community, and it is to this day. The lion's share of beer here is Mick Ultra, Coors Light, now Yingling's in Texas, so they, they their flight gets a little play. But other than that, craft beer market in Abilene is probably even a smaller percentage than it would be in any other market, even in Texas, I would imagine. The further west you go, it gets a little sketchy. We're not definitely not Austin, the Fort Worth, Dallas area, that kind of thing. Yeah. So it was in my mind a grand idea, and I but I couldn't see how it would go wrong. You know, mm-hmm. we we had had another little restaurant here in town uh, called Cypress Street Station had bought one of those little uh, they're called the Beetle System. It's the one tank you put hot water in it, you dissolve the malt extract in there, you ferment it in this tank, and then it basically clears itself out. You carbonate it in the same tank and you're basically serving it out of the fermenter with all this yeast and nasty shit at the bottom. So he tried that and he, Brian Green was kind of a forward thinking guy, the guy he's passed away since, but he was truly actually the first craft brewery in Abilene. He just, he didn't go about it the right way. You know, he had a restaurant that hadn't existed for 17 or 18 years prior and he just wanted something to kind of boost revenue. So he did this little brew, brew system. Didn't work out because beer was shitty and it has since gone away. We had another little brewery that popped up. Six gun. What? Oh, yeah. Dang I forgot about six us. What was that? I, I too. See, six I forgot bro- about it too, but six he brothers. opened like a month before us. No, no, no. No, no not those guys. And six brothers. Oh, okay. You had a yes. bunch of sixes. This guy, yeah, the guy, yeah, a lot of sixes here. The guy opened up about a month before we did he built his own all of his own stainless steel equipment brewed beer and then immediately packaged it in bottles and, and got with a distributor and i think he lasted like two months had quality issues and just people didn't appreciate what he was doing so he kind of fell by the wayside so technically we're not the first but technically we're the first one to do it for any length of time <laughs> with any type of quality so yeah i wouldn't count his either James, when did you guys open? So this is 14 when he opens. You're drinking beer there. You're a fan of what they're doing. And at some point, you had the same idea that, holy shit, I also need to be in this market. I think we started talking about it in either late 2015 or really early 2016. No, it would have been late 2015. We would do like homebrew hangouts in my partner Alex's garage and have a bunch of military guys come over and drink homebrew and, and hang out, just kind of shoot shit on Saturdays. And a lot of people, like your friends, are like, hey, this is dope. Like, you guys should do this for real. And we're like, hey, yeah, we should do this for real. And so we, we did. 2017, we opened. And you guys started kind of small, uh, right, With initially, or compared to where you are now? Yeah, we were actually in a, like, warehouse building. What do you think, Jeff? Maybe... 300 yards down the road. Maybe maybe block and a half from our, our building. Jeff and them found a building pretty quickly. We had to fight tooth and nail to get into a building here in Abilene. Because Abilene, after Jeff and them opened, they were like, well, we don't have any rules for this. We have no idea like what's going on. So they were kind of dicks to us, like trying to find a building. We're like, well, this building is five feet too close to that residence over there. So like, mm. you can't use this one. And we're like, it's five feet. Is there anything we can do to make this 
make this work and like well you can move the front door to the back then we find out you couldn't do that because abilene passed its own ordinance where in texas it's door door front to door front Mm -hmm. well abilene has a edge of property line to edge of property line oh the actual acreage Uh, the dirt not even the building yeah Mm -hmm. so so a lot space it makes it even like and it's also as the crow flies out here not on the street so it just makes finding a space out here super difficult after hunting and hunting and hunting we ended up a couple hundred yards from Pappy's. We did start small. The I love when people know who Colorado Brewing Systems are because everybody who knows them knows how much of a nightmare they are. But it was two two barrel giant brew in a bag systems. That, you got that one where the barrel system lifted out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was like two of those, so you could use it as like a four barrel. Or you could do two separate two-barrel batches at the same time. They'll tip over too, won't they, James? Yes, yes, they will. And did one? It, it did turn over on me one day. Did the grain spill so, over the floor and all kind of shit, or did yeah, kettles were full, and, weren't they? Yeah, the grain basket was full, and boil kettle was full, and at like 185 degrees, and I'm like pushing the big grain basket out to into the track up top to lower it down to start graining out and it turned over on me and 185 degree wart went everywhere in my boots and because like a genius i was brewing in shorts that day and like mid-calf wellies it was not that was not a good day my favorite brewer that worked for me nathan literally lives in cargo shorts he never wore anything other than cargo cargo shorts in wellies boots every time he brewed so but it would have happened to him too. But. Now it's i don't care how hot it is i'm in i'm in welly boots and i've got the duluth fire hose pants like <laughs> never again <laughs> never tucked in either right yeah you can't get your boot off fast enough when it's no hot work you went a different route where partners right it seems like the abilene brewery model is three white men partner up and open a brewery <laughs> Pappy says three guys and we had three guys and grain theory here in town has three guys well, now six brothers so, have yeah, we, two sets of three guys so that would yeah, be yeah. different yeah yeah they had yeah. a bunch they had a a different setup there. I partnered up with Will and Alex. I'd known Will for a long time. I'd known Alex for a, a decent amount of time, a couple of years, from when I was running the draft house here in town. I'd been home, homebrewing with Alex and another friend of ours, Nick, for I don't know, a couple of years. And then we also had two other like investor partners that were my in-laws at the time. My ex-father-in-law was a banker. So we gave him our business model and he was like, yeah, this checks out. Let's do it. We gave our business plan to him to like review it and look it over and tell us how stupid we were so we could fix it and take it to a real bank. So but he looked at it and was like, yeah, I want in on this action. And they tell you not to go into business with family. And I can vouch for that. So did you, you know, obviously you're supposed to have an operating agreement and it spells out who the boss is and all that kind of stuff. Did you essentially have five CEOs at that point or some co-CEOs? Is that sort of what ended up happening? Yeah, we didn't have like a terrible experience. When it got down to the nitty gritty and there was a disagreement, then it was it was hard to navigate through that. Yeah. Um, but not like never like a horrible, awful experience like you hear from some people and their their business partners. Okay. So Jeff, were your partners actually equity partners that also had voting rights or were they managers as well, yeah. essentially? Well, we had, we had three, uh, three of us here that were the, the partners in, in the brewery. We had taken on a couple of equity partners at a less than 10%. Those people were just there. They had kicked in some money, but they never were working partners, didn't have anything to do with the day-to-day operation. I retired. I was the only one that was full-time 
working at the brewery. I did all the day-to-day operations, all the brewing, all the kegging, all the cleaning, all the everything. Had two partners that were both still employed, full-time jobs. Had one partner who I'd started home brewing with. He was the finance guy. He did all the book work and all the tax paperwork and all the other stuff. Other partner, he did a lot of small batch brewing. He would come in and brew some small things. We had a pilot system that we also did some small test batches for the tap room. His wife was a marketing guru, so he got a lot of connections with her. And he had a lot of connections into the city and to a lot of different people. So that was kind of how he he played into it. But day-to-day operation. For probably the first three and a half, four years uh, was all me. I did the lion's share of all the heavy lifting throughout the the course of the operation. I did hire a couple part-time people going forward, some part-time brewers. And then about maybe almost two years ago, year and a half ago, I hired a full-time brewer to come in and do what I had done. And I had stepped away from the brewery for a little bit. Then here we are. We're here here now at closing time. So One other question about the business plan. So you guys both had plans in the beginning. Obviously, you picked you know what your revenues are going to be, which profit was going to be, and what that shortfall was going to be, and what you needed as far as operating capital in between. How far off would you say the operating capital piece of your business plan was? Did you have to invest more money in the first year, second year, third year, all three years? Yeah. Yeah, we did. I know for a fact we did. You know, they always say you have to have money to make money, and I always <laughs> thought that was bullshit, but until you got a business and you're trying to figure out how to pay the rent, how to buy grain and how to do all this stuff, and you're waiting on money to come in, unless you're sitting on a stack of cash, this this business is hard. It's really hard to make the day-to-day things that you have to do. I, I worked without a salary for three years, three and a half years, and then took a minor salary. I had a retirement check, but it wasn't, you know, I had retired early from my career in order to open the brewery. So it, it wasn't enough to pay the bill. So my family, we financially struggled for a long, long time, you know. So if you don't have a bundle of cash you're sitting on, it this this business is very, very hard. It's hard to pay the bills. You wind up having to put things back and wait. I want to do this, but I got to wait till so-and-so before I can do that. So it's just, it's real hard. James, what about you? The business plan that you originally projected, did you need additional capital fairly early or did was it? Yeah, I think like our biggest issue is like none of us had like any business opening a business. Like we were like, yeah, we should make beer and we're going to sell it. That's going to be fun. And so like we did our business plan and like all those numbers look great on paper. (laughs) But when you don't think about net 30 terms and shit like that, where you're like, well, I've sent all this product out and I haven't gotten money back for it yet. I can't pay this bill because I'm waiting on the thousands of dollars coming from this distributor. I don't know. We just didn't factor that in. We were just like, all right, yeah, we'll, we'll sell this and then we'll get money. We weren't business people. So yeah, we did have to put more capital and, and our investor, like I said, was my father-in-law and like he kind of wanted to let us learn a little bit. And he was always saying, like, we don't have enough operating capital. We don't have enough operating capital. We were like, Mitch, we got this, man. It's all good. <laughs> you see one good weekend uh, in the tasting room. We'll be fine. Yeah, yep. exactly. You see we're one right good weekend. there. We're that close. And you're, you're always just, there's always something. Like, you have that good weekend in the tap room. And you forget, like, oh, I got to do this. And, like, or something will break in the brew house. Like, oh, there goes that. And I'm fucked for the next month now. Like, it just, it was always something to where you just couldn't get enough cushion to feel comfortable making bigger moves that you just couldn't afford. Like moving into another market, you think, oh yeah, I'll just go to another market and I'll sell beer there. But like once you're there, you're like, man, we really need somebody up here selling this stuff for us because distributors aren't selling it for you. They just have it and people have to want it. 
and you could go to Amarillo, who the hell are you? <laughs> so it's just it, when you don't have the money to pay for stuff like that because you're waiting on money from another thing. I just felt like we were always just moving money from here to here to here to here to here to here to here, with never actually putting any in our pockets. Yeah, I get a little PTSD listening to you talk about it, actually. So we, we need to take a quick break. But before I do, I want to leave you guys with a quote that uh, Jeff said. And, and part of it, because I want to talk about Abilene overall and the art industry overall. From 2016, when you guys expanded your distribution, you were in the, in the paper, I think it was, and they quoted you as saying that you think Abilene is just now hitting its stride in the craft beer market and making a quality product helps. And I know what you said six months ago. So we're going to compare the two when we come back from the break and I want to hear what you think. Hope you're right back. You guys remember when the phone company used to print all the phone numbers on the internet and then send it to your house in some book large enough to knock someone the hell out? That's how I feel about fermenting beer in closed tanks without AccuBrew. So the industry can be so much better by just being digital. AccuBrew is simple to install, simpler to use, and one of those how in the hell do we ever get along without it products. For less than the case of beer a month, you'll get real-time fermentation feedback on current gravity, temperature, and even clarity. If anything is slowing down or out of the range you set for your recipes, it'll alert you, your brewer, and whoever the hell gets paid to fix it. Making better beer in 2023 is not an option. Install AccuBrew as soon as you possibly can, check improving the quality of the beer up your list, and get back to figuring out how on earth to be profitable in your beer business. Drop your mash paddle, go to AccuBrew.io, follow them on socials at AccuBrew, or just call Parker at 727-685-9860. Your beer, your customers, and least of all, I will thank you. All right, welcome back. Thanks for sticking with us. I left you with that quote, and I just want to kind of get a feel for, obviously, your impression overall of the market has changed somewhat. So at that point, 2016, why did you think that Abilene was just like ready for explosion or just hitting its stride and was about to go faster? We had a really good year in 2016. We started off, our, our business model was Tap room only one day a week, just Saturdays. We were open from 11 to 7. Had a food truck here. Starting off, tap room sales was the retail was the bulk of what we did, you know, but it was just one day a week. And everybody kept saying, man, when are you going to open more days? When are you going to do this? When are you going to do that? And we're like, no, we're going to keep to our guns. We're going to keep doing this. We're working towards being a production brewery. That's what we wanted to be. We wanted to have kegs in the market, eventually wanted to have packaged beer. I think everybody back before us and up until Kind of in that time frame, when the beer laws changed in 13, we were going to open up and we were going to be a destination brewery out in Clyde, a little town kind of east of here where I'm from. At that point, you know, we couldn't do the tap room thing anyway. We could just have sold them a glass and gave them some free samples. And so we were setting it up. We were going to have like a, it was a pecan orchard and we were going to have a wedding venue and do some other things. And then we started hearing the rumblings that they were going to change the beer laws and, and it kept sounding really serious. And even our, we had friends that worked for several of the distributors around here. They said, yeah, I think it's going to happen this time. I think everybody's going to find common ground. They're going to make it happen. So sure enough, in 13, that happened. So we decided to move to Abilene because it's a lot bigger market class, like 3,000 people. So everybody would be more likely to come to our place and drink beer in our tap room in 128,000 population town versus 3,000. 2016, we had ramped up quite a bit. We were brewing, I say, a lot of beer. It was probably 400 barrels, 500 barrels, or whatever it was at the time. But but we were putting most of it out in the market, and our Saturdays were still really good at the tap room. And so we were at a point where we thought, man, we're going to have to get help to come in here. We're going to have to do this and, and ramp up. We're going to start making twice as much beer as what we, we're making now. And so we were very positive at, at in about 16 time frame, 16, 17. 
part of 18 were pretty decent years. 18, we actually expanded quite a bit. We actually had gotten a, a grant through the, the city of Abilene. They had a program. I think James and them won it year after we did. They gave a $100,000 grant for entrepreneurial kind of a competition. We went through all this stuff and we were one of two businesses that got the $100,000 grant. So and we had this money and we had to meet certain stipulations over the course of four years in order to have it forgiven. Basically, it became a grant instead of a loan at that point. So we bought a canning line. We bought a little small craft can, 15 canning, bought an extra large bright tank. So we got it set up. We bought a, a bigger glycol unit so we could chill everything. We had just used small individual glycol units on our on our fermenters and it was kind of a pain in the ass. So we just kind of expanded and kind of put ourselves up where we could maybe go to the next level just a little bit. So the grant definitely helped us kind of go that way. Our distributor really kept preaching to us about, you don't know how much money you're leaving on the table without doing packaged beer. And I was like, <laughs> okay, it sounds good. you know. Well, then you start looking at the profit margin on packaged beer and you're like, you love Fuckers lied to me. So in their defense, Somebody's they made money, but it ain't me. They made for them. <laughs> they got their money, but I'm not gonna poo-poo on our distributors. We had a really good relationship with our distributor. They changed a little bit. We started off; it was a locally owned distributor. They had a partner company. It was two brothers. One owned a company here, one on one in Amarillo, and so they actually merged. I'm trying to think when that happened. Maybe. 50 16, I don't remember. James, you remember when they did? Because you guys use the same distributor. Just before we opened, so it had to be 16. So basically they merged and, and all of the head honchos were up in Murillo. So we kind of lost a lot of the, the mm. local, local stuff. They weren't as in tune with what we were doing down here. So our day-to-day people and, and the people that we worked with here in Abilene were, were wonderful. But then they wanted product for up in Amarillo. They wanted product to go other places. And so we were kind of stretching ourselves way too thin, trying to keep quality where it was and trying to produce enough to go there, here. And we had already ventured with another distributor to San Angelo, which is about 100 miles away, kind of south southwest of us. Kind of got too far forward, I think, maybe a little bit instead of really, really focusing on what we were doing. And got to have somebody in these places to sell this stuff because as much as you love your distributor, they're not going to be your best advocate some days. You know, those guys taking kegs and, and stuff in there. They're just doing their job. They're getting their paycheck. And so it's hard for them to be super brand loyal when they're pumping Coors Light kegs and stuff in all day long, you know, so. And they're incentivized to sell them monetarily. So, like, I get yeah, it. We, like, we they, can't like, do that. I was in the game. I was in distribution. And you sell what the incentives are for that week or that month. And, like, because it just means your paycheck is better. So, like, you can't blame them. But at yeah. the same time, you're just like, like, it, we're just a small group of guys. Like, there's not Please. a ton of places out here like that want craft like out in Abilene it's hard to find a place that wants to put craft beer on like it's just it's a weird market out here it's like there's not a ton of places that want to put craft beer on so you're just like when you go into those places show some local love like come on man yeah the most crafty tap either blue moon tap you know well we've got blue moon on tap well okay how about how about a locally made Hefeweizen or a wit beer or something like that? I think we'll just stick with what we got, you know? Yeah, get a lot of that. It's, it's, a hard, it's a hard nut to crack sometimes. I actually probably want to come back to distribution, but James, I had a question for you about when you first started. It sounds like both of you guys really started draft only to begin with. Was that a choice or was that based on, you know, a couple hundred grand for canning line was just out of reach and you wanted to start draft only? Packaging beer and cans and stuff like that, when we opened, like that wasn't, even on our radar, like we really didn't want to be like a huge brewery. Like we really just wanted to be like the local brewery and tap room that has food truck with like some distributed kegs around town. 
Um, I really wanted the tap room to be the driver of what we were doing. So like the idea of cans was like, oh, that's something that big breweries do. That's what those guys do. Like we're not even sure we'll ever be able to do that. We went into it intentionally draft only, foolishly. Was there another brewery that you were kind of modeling after? I mean, obviously, Happy Slocum, but beyond, beyond that one, was there somebody else who were like, well, XYZ Brewers doing draft only, so it must work? Yeah, I mean, I probably couldn't name an individual ones, but I mean, we would go on trips and talk to other breweries in the DFW area and stuff like that who weren't at the time distributing so like this is like a viable model and we're like yeah like yeah well, we just never took into account like oh this is dfw and we're in abilene so like they're draft only but they've got hundreds of accounts to sell to mm-hmm. we just didn't we don't have that here when you expanded you did put in a canning line right we bought a covid canning line a covid canning line with the yeah, EIGL that's what, funds that's what i call our cans our covid canning line in full panic mode how can we sell beer when it's only in keg? The first go round of shutdowns here, like people came out and they're buying growlers and I mean, supporting the hell out of us. And we were like, yeah, we're going to make it. This is cool. Like Abilene's showing up. That second shutdown though, nobody showed up. Like Crickets. everyone was yeah, like, it was, it was hard. I think yeah. everybody, everybody panicked and everybody was out of money at that point. We were the same way. Yeah. We opened up the drive through our building, the tap room part used to be a smoke shop, so it had a built-in drive through window. Man, we would show up on Saturdays. There'd be a line in the drive through already waiting for us to show up that first run. Uh, after that, man, we were just we were sucking. Everybody yeah. else, we talked to each other, and we'd be like, I ain't got nobody. You got nobody? No. <laughs> what are you going to do? I don't know. I mean, either. I don't, yeah, know. We gonna, I don't know. May drink a beer. I don't know. We expanded, but not with the canning line. The canning line came after that. It was like, we expanded and moved. We're done with build out moving into our new space in April of 2020. We were like, hey, we're done. Like, and shut down. Yeah. yeah. Hey, I got, uh, something, got something special for you, buddy. 2020 was the most nauseating and stressful year of my life to date. Like, what do you do? Like, it's just like you're just watching watching the world end, apparently. And we just panic bought a canning line because we were like, this is the only way we're going to be able to get beer out. God knows when they're going to like let us be a business again. So we bought a micro canner, MC Craft. And because it was COVID, they weren't sending anyone out to train you how to do it. It was all over Zoom, trying to learn how to use a canning line, which was a treat. We started doing that, and then we it just wasn't, I don't know, we were not fans of canning. We didn't like doing it. It wasn't something we planned on doing. So from the get-go, it was just, everyone kind of had a bad attitude about it. Well, it definitely helps you be able to send your beer out. Since at this point, both of you guys are canning, I'm curious, because nobody else did, but... Did you go through first and figure out the numbers, batch costs, sales price at cans, distribution cut, like what your actual profit margins were going to be and like what you should charge? Or did you kind of do what everybody else did and said, hey, the other half of ice in the, in the area, they're selling for nine bucks a six pack. So that's what we're going to sell it for and then back it out. That's what we did. We should have in hindsight, we probably should have went back in and, and actually looked at the numbers and, and plugged in it specifically for us. But we kind of just went off market standard for us. We'd go out and see. We want to compete with these certain brands, you know. They retail for $8.99, $9.99, whatever it is. And so we basically backpriced ours to the distributor to where they could add 30%, whatever it is they, they add. Mm-hmm. We kind of fucked ourselves, I think, by going at it that way instead of actually looking at the numbers and putting them down to where we actually needed them to be. Now, we still made a little bit of money profit-wise on packets, but but obviously the smaller the packaging, the less the profit margin is. Canning for us was way better 
when you look at it from them from a bottling perspective, we kept looking at you know how much bottles were and how much waste you have and neck labels, labels, caps, six pack holders, boxes. You know you got all the, all that stuff. And so we felt like cans was a way to go for us. And so we got the little can in line. And James said that 2020 was his most stressful year. To me, 2021 was the most stressful year because everybody was in the same situation in 2020. In my opinion, we all kind of were sucking and. There was shared misery there. You know, everybody felt bad. But we had put ourselves, thank goodness, the only good thing about not having a lot of working capital is we had never gone to the bank and we never had loans. We didn't have any of that stuff. So our overhead was a little lower during the COVID year. So we were able to kind of trudge through that. Well, 2021, when you're trying to make up that deficit and then you're trying to get the money for 2021, that to me was more stressful than, than actually being shut down for, for COVID, you know, in my opinion. Yeah, there was a there was a pile of people who were all unhappy during that period of time. I remember yeah. every single month we started off the month planning to go out of business and then by the end of the month we we're like, fuck, we actually have a couple <laughs> dollars in the bank. I guess we'll stay open for another got, month. Got a couple bank. Yeah. And then we took the EIDL money too with the intention of never touching it. I didn't invest in yeah. new stuff really, outside of I did buy fifteen grand for an automatic label or which we didn't have a choice. We couldn't have mm-hmm. produced the numbers we did without it. But outside right. of that, we ended up just using it all for operating capital because our distributor just yep. stopped selling and it just didn't work. Well, our, our distributor, and I don't know if you want to talk about that later on or whatever, we always had the conversation, man, we, we can sell as much as you can make. Mm-hmm. And there much as I can make is not as much as I can make because I guarantee you I had beer sitting in the cold case all the time that we would make sell and then we would prepare and get it ready. And then they'd be like, ah, we're only going to take 120 cases today and we're going to do this. And then I'm like, Jet, dude, what am I going to do with the rest of this stuff? It'll go bad before I come back to you in a month or whatever. So there was times when we couldn't keep up with what they wanted. But then when we really tried to ramp up and do what we were going to do because they said they could sell it all, then they, they kind of dropped the ball on that. Definitely unfair expectations. So that distributor, was it one of the macro brewers? Was it just a, either Benny Keith or a Miller distributor or whatever? Was it was it a big one? Yeah, we, we both used uh, Reed Beverage here in Abilene. Yeah. And, and like I said, they, they're good people. Yeah. They did the Coors, Coors Miller around here, but they're okay. locally owned. So different perspective. They were a, bo- a lot more of a family-owned company. And we had really good relationships with those guys. In the grand scheme, I don't think they did us dirty. I don't think they did anything to hurt us. We went through a spell there where they, they hired a lady out of Amarillo. I think she ran managed apartment complexes or something, and they hired her to be our craft salesperson. And so she'd look at her list and say, I'd say, what do you guys need? And she'd be like, I just need 20 kegs today, or I need 10 cases of this. And I was like, really? That hurt us for a while. That They kind of kicked the wind out of our sails for a little while. And I know James and I have had this conversation that kind of did them the same way. We're sitting here ramped up, got beer in the cold case, ready to go. And you know, this new person who has no clue, then you're still sitting on 80 kegs and that you got nothing to do with. So James, yeah, did you was, have the same experience? Yeah. Like for the most part, like we love Reed Beverage. Like, like I always hear from other brewers that they can't get their damn distributor on the phone, figure out an issue, but you can call the owner on his cell phone and he would answer. And so it was really easy to figure out issues there. The period of time, I can't even remember her name, scratched her from my memory because we went from a time of like, Reed would pick up and it's pallets of kegs that they're picking up. And then she took over and it was like, yeah, we just need like six kegs. And we're like, what, what's going on? Like, cause my, my sales are below the floor. Like what's Mm. happened? And it was, they say because of her and I didn't want to know the whole story i was just so like frustrated because it lasted for a couple months like i see him out in town like i have 
beers with them and like they're cool guys overall it was a positive experience with our distributor that's the only distributor that we ever were with was reed beverage i've had that happen before where they bring in a new person and almost essentially give them a different mantra where they can only sell pre-sales or that the they're you know limiting inventory so they didn't go long because maybe the last person that was managing it would over order do you think it had something to do with that where she was just trying to stay conservative or and i'm asking this from an advice perspective of how another brewery owner could navigate when this happens to them what kind of questions could they ask so the story we got because we asked these questions the guy that used to that used to do all the sales ordering and stuff for us his name was andy super great guy what had happened is they had transitioned andy over to another division and within reed and they hired this girl to fill his shoes but they didn't give Andy time to train this girl. So this girl got stuck in there in the craft section coming in from outside of the beer business. And nobody really sat with her and showed her what her job entailed day to day and how, how they had been doing it prior to us. So definitely if you get into a situation like that, when you got somebody new coming there, there's going to be a definite overlap. And this one, was an overlap, but it was actually an overlap. And there was like a, I don't know, maybe lack of communication on our part. Maybe should we should have mentioned something sooner, told them what was going on. We relied on her to go back to them and say, hey, this is what they say they've been getting, but we're going to take this. Is that right? That never happened. Several, several months later, we finally got somebody on board that said, okay, yeah, this is what she's got to do. And we had never showed her how to do that. So definitely kind of communication error. But that several months worth kicked us in the nuts. Yeah, it was, it was hard. Yeah, so the lesson would be if, if the person doing your ordering leaves and someone takes their place, be wary. Like get in there and get involved. Be hands on. If not, you'll get screwed. Well, let's talk really quickly about kind of, well, not really quickly, but what your product line was. And so, James, let's focus with you first. So you are effectively kind of like the second one to open. I assume you're going to do slightly different lineup than what Pappy Slocum was going to do. How did you decide which beers you were going to release? What was going to be your core? How you were going to run specialties and one-offs? Like, what was that conversation like and decision? For us, like, we knew we wanted, we needed a fizzy yellow beer, and we had a blonde ale that we really liked, so we stuck with that. And the IPA we opened with, I like firmly bitter ipas uh, i like like resin notes i like that piney notes i'm i was a big fan of like early 2000 style ipas so that's what we started with and we had that ipa for a while but just with the way the market changed just over six years we were open we really just had a core lineup of an oatmeal stout an american wheat a amber ale an ipa and a blonde ale and then everything else on the tavern was just rotating. Just whatever we made next was what was on. Our Blondale, like, by and far, was our top seller, um, which was great because it was the cheapest beer that we made. Trying to get that product into other locations was kind of tough just because, one, there's not a lot of tap handles for that out here in Abilene. And two, like, if they do have room to put something like that on, they, they want something different. Like, what's new, what's different. So, like, trying to push... Our core products out was hard because the places that would put craft on just wanted something different. Something dramatically different than the the mass loggers. So if you put your blonde next to a Bud Light, your blonde would sell to the craft guy, but then the craft guy's going to come in next week and want something more interesting. For us, we just took like a real simple approach to what we wanted on our tap wall because we knew that like Avalanche didn't have like the most refined craft beer palette. So we just wanted approachable stuff that hopefully the market will change a little bit out here and you could do more 
fun and interesting things. But we didn't have like a scheduled seasonal lineup. It was just like, oh, this did well. Yeah, we'll probably make that beer again in a month or two. Outside of those core brands, like we've never were too intentional about like special releases or anything like that. One just because we didn't think Evelyn would have the demand for a special release party or anything like that. So yeah, I mean, we just started out with those five like core brands and everything else is rotating. Jeff, how does that contrast to what you guys did? Kind of the same. We started off and we opened up, we knew, kind of like James said, we knew we had to have a light beer. We didn't really make a lot of light beers as homebrewers. So we specifically designed a uh, cream ale called Local Yellow that was our light, light beer. We knew we wanted a hoppy beer. We did a beer called Tom 23. It's an Imperial Red IPA. It's about 10.5%, so it's it's huge. I wanted a dark beer, but I, did, I didn't want something all year round that was like a stout or a porter. So we actually did be the one we were talking about. It's a, a Scottish 80 shilling, so it's little darker a little roasty got touch touch of uh, peat malt in it it drank a little lighter than but it was still dark we started off with those three on tap and then we would just brew something small small batches for the tap room at first uh to fill out we had an eight tap lineup when we started and that's what we still had when we closed so the rest would be little one-offs here and there we would just try some things we wound up brewing we had a couple beers that hit in the tap room and they just Everybody wanted them all the time. We had a, a Belgian pale ale called Douchebag Jimmy. Beer that wound up being the biggest beer we ever did was a one-off. Started off uh, Stripper Dust as a vanilla porter. We started that just as a one or two-off winter beer, and then people just kept asking for it, asking for it. And then when we closed, it wound up being our most popular beer by by far. So we kind of just listened to what the tap room told us at first, and then some of those beers that were really, really popular, they became staples. And then we would actually get those label approved and send them out in kegs. And we were like James, and then we didn't do full-fledged seasonals all the time until we started packaging. Then we would do, you know, we had two year-round beers. We had low yellow and stripper dust year-round, and then we had four seasonal beers that we started canning. We had a Riley's Red, an Irish Red in, in the spring. We did Toes in the Water, which was a coconut lime version of a local yellow that we did in the summer. And then we did Oktoberfest in the fall, and then we did Red State Stout, which is an American stout during the winter time. That was the package beer rotation. We still did some one-off stuff, different things in the tap room, but for the most part, once we fell into packaging, that kind of changed up the way that we did things back in those days. Did either of you guys do a milkshake IPA? No. James did everything. He was he he tried everything. He was he was a he was an innovator. I don't think I ever did a milkshake. I'm not a fan of like the hazy IPA or anything like that. So I. It was hard pressed to get me to make anything like that. I didn't make hazies, but I don't think I ever made a milkshake. All right. Well, I'm going to leave you with a question while we go on a quick break. Whether you think that would have made you guys more profitable and maybe you'd still be alive today if you did a milkshake IPA. We'll be right back. Every guest of the show gets a thank you box of badassery as a gift for being so honest and open with all of us. It always includes an autographed copy of my book, goodies from my sponsors, a few beers from my old brewery, and a damn brewery t-shirt. And I have used one promotional company for my t-shirts since the late 2000s. Leapfrog Promotions is owned by the other Kelly, Kelly Smith. He's built his business by offering a diverse range of products with kick-ass customer service and attention to detail. That is why I have to recommend Leapfrog Promotions to you, to people you love, a few you just sort of like, and two you absolutely fucking cannot stand. Give yourself a gift and type Dan Brewery in the notes at checkout for 5% off all your purchases. Even better... Every single purchase you make benefits the show. Find them online at leapfrogpromos.com. The Leapfrog guys, just remember Leapfrog. All right, thanks for sticking back. This is section three, which is my 
time that I want to really want to dig into what happened. So, you know, obviously you guys started the brewery, to be honest, from my perspective, not that dissimilarly to how most breweries in the United States have started, particularly not of the 9,200 craft brewers that are in business today and, you know, at least 85% of which started in the last seven years. So let's go back to the question that I left it with. Do you guys think that you would still be in a better position had you done milkshake IPAs and brownie batter stouts? And maybe you did a brownie batter stout, but I, I hate those two. I don't think so. I think it just delays the inevitable. No matter, it, even packaging and stuff, like the margins are just so razor thin. No matter what you're making, like your margins are your margins. And even like out here in Abilene, like I don't even think there's a demand out here for hazy IPAs and milkshake IPAs. Grade 3 makes some hazy IPAs. They do fun stuff with hops. <laughs> like on a five barrel system and they'll make three barrel batches of these hazy IPAs. So like there's not a huge demand for it. So there is a brewery out here doing it. And if you talk to them, they'll say like, yeah, like last year fucking sucked. And the only reason like we're saying it's not the worst possible years because we have food and they function as like a brewery and kitchen. So they're open for lunch and dinner and they have coffee. And they're like, it's honestly like that stuff that kept us moving through last year. I don't know what you would have to make out here, but there's definitely not a demand for that kind of stuff out here, except for, like Jeff said, homebrew club guys and just beer nerds in the Air Force that are are out here. We started off from competition brewing, so we were always kind of trying to be stylistically correct in most beers we did. Now, we did do some small one-off batches of some weird stuff. You know, we did some gozas, and I'd had a white chocolate imperial golden stout. You know, every now and then you throw something like that. That's a half-barrel-sized batch that's two kegs and it's gone in a weekend kind of thing. But for the most part, we kind of stuck to the traditional stuff. And that kind of was our niche, you know. And then like like James said, Grain Theory's niche is their business model is they don't ever hardly make the same beer the same way twice. And that that's good and bad. You know, you have people that are interested in craft beer. They like that. They like something new. When you go to certain places and you can buy that make your own six pack thing, you know, so a lot of the did that for years and years and years when we'd go to Central Market and out of town or whatever. And so I understand why they do that, but I don't know if that's a business model because when you got people that come in and they say, okay, I like that beer. I'll go back tomorrow and get that same beer. Well, that beer may never be back on tap again, you know, so you either have to refine their taste and have them, okay, say, if you like this one, you may like this one. If not, they won't come back. So it, it's it's kind of a fine line that you got to balance as to what you want. But then we fell into the deal where we were so focused on making the two core brands that we had on all the time that had to be out in the market. We kind of lost track of people who do want some variety. We would have the same mm-hmm. four, five, six beers on for months at a time. Well, instead of putting something new on, having at least a, a one-off in the tap room, James and those were pretty good about continuing that new beer release on Friday, do different things here and there. We kind of got away from that. And that's, in my mind, that's kind of part of the reason why we fell into the trap where we got more focused on production than we did just being a good brewery. Well, I think you have to do that. There's a period where if you don't dial in that production, you don't get the efficiencies to get the profitability. You, you can't be a good production brewery without spending a lot of time doing that. But yeah, I mean, there's a, there's definitely a blend. I'm actually interviewing a guy from Seattle or I guess not Seattle, but up in Washington State who I always thought I was one of those like esoteric grip it and rip it brewers. And this dude is the exact type A of me of what I thought I was. He just... Whatever the fuck is in the greenhouse, he, he makes that beer. It was he's super interesting, it in. super, super creative. And obviously he went out of business too. And I, I don't <laughs> think that's a great idea either. Somewhere maybe in the middle, 
is hopefully what we're going to figure out works. But so I want to talk a little bit about kind of how the bottom dropped out. We know COVID was there. James, you obviously moved into a bigger building. You decided obviously that there was more demand than you could meet in your smaller facility. So you moved into, it's like a mixed use thing, which is kind of, I don't know, when I looked it up, it sounded cool. You got a coffee shop next door. There's a fucking nightclub right around the corner. It's like event space. Like you had a, a true kind of destination with a bunch of different businesses there. What I found in my business is when we did that, and there's these great restaurants around the street. The idea would be that you'd go to eat at the restaurant and drink at the bar, at the brewery. But a lot of times it didn't happen. They would come have a beer or a flight and then go out. And that just wasn't enough revenue for us. Anyways, how, how did you decide on the new place? And then more importantly, like, did it work? And or obviously didn't. Why didn't it work? So. Yeah, we basically were at a point where our little Colorado system, I was turning the system over twice to make six barrels of beer. And then that would be gone too fast and so with me like brewing and distributing and managing the tap room and between everything i had to do it's like man we just need to make more beer at once and we were kind of getting to the point where like we're kind of tired of being over here on china street and that's not like a the, the street was actually called china street and then we were presented with an opportunity to move and so we were like hell yeah we're gonna move to this new space it's being built for us and they're starting this new thing called the Soda District, south of downtown Abilene. There's going to be a cocktail bar and an axe-throwing venue and restaurant. We jumped on that. When COVID hit, the restaurants stopped being a thing. And so the, the whole idea of soda kind of crumbled a little bit during that time. And then after COVID, some new businesses moved in, like a coffee shop, and uh, the cocktail bar is still there. But Abilene is kind of a fickle bitch, and either they'll support the hell out of something new like that, or they won't. And so, like, just the whole area, like that whole area over there, just nothing seemed, is seeming to click. And so when our, our lease was coming up at our current location, and when it came down to, like, do we want to try and renew this lease? And the landlord told us, well, we're going to sell the building. And when that came up, we were like, we're not moving a brewery again. That was the biggest nightmare that we experienced while owning the brewery uh, was moving to a new location. And so we were just like, man, we're not doing this. Sales were bad last year. Uh, we saw an opportunity to where like we could walk away from this like scotch-free. We could sell our equipment, have enough to pay like everything off and just walk away, wipe the dust off our feet and say, man, that was a fun six years and not be in trouble at the end of it all. So we jumped on that opportunity and here we are. <laughs> yeah. Well, so the building yeah. is listed for sale. Did you guys consider at any point getting investors and buying it? We had 30 day right of first refusal or refusal. And we were just like, we could entertain that idea. But like looking at the way sales went in 2021 and Dude, it's only, motivation level. It's only 1.1 million. Uh, that's what oh, it's yeah, listed. That's it. <laughs> and so we... We just, we weren't about it. beer, dude. I'm telling you. That's a <laughs> lot, a lot, a lot of, of beer fucking beer. Six dollars a pint. Yeah, I can't do that in my head. We were like, there's just, there's just no, there's just no way. And Will had just gotten a new job and he's really loving his new job. And was kind of drifting towards wanting to spend more time doing that. He also guides hunts on the side. And he wants to spend more time doing that. Alex had just retired from the Air Force and is kind of looking to, cut some chains and maybe do some new things. And so it's just like, hey, we have the opportunity to just put it all in a box and put a bow on it. And like, hey, remember that time we ran a brewery <laughs> for six years? So that's that's what we voted to do. So we've got three weeks left and then we're, 
We're done. Yeah, the 25th, I think, is your last day? Yeah. Yeah, congrats. You can get out that way. That's great. So I lasted 10 years and I should have left after five. You're, you're smarter than me. So, Jeff, obviously, during the same time, you're you're struggling as well. James said that yeah. last year was bad and we're going to get back to what that means and, and exactly how, in what ways it was bad. But how was it bad for you? Like what, obviously, you're growing. It looks great. And yeah. sometime last year, you didn't. So what happened? What changed? Yeah. We, we ventured into, you know, you Kelly can't sit here and I can't put my finger on one particular thing that was the demise of what we were, but I like to find a person and blame one person. That's my favorite. It'd be nice. I'd like to put <laughs> that guy in the face, but I don't know who that guy is. So, you know what I mean? But so we're, we're coming out of COVID and like I said, 2021 was a bad year for us just because trying to compensate for 2020 and then still move forward with 2021. We, we kind of never figured that out. Sales dropped here. Once COVID hit, our market was really, really weird. And, and James said it best, it's fickle bits down here. And it's probably that way everywhere. But we just have the perspective of Abilene. So people got used to staying at home. So you think that would be a retailer's dream. You know, you, you're going to sell beer to the local grocery store in, in cans, and then they're going to buy the hell out of that. And it's going to go away. Well, kind of, you know, we, we had pretty good package beer sales. But then again, everything went up. You couldn't get cans as fast as you could before. And lead time on cans started off at the size we were buying was five weeks and went to eight weeks. And then it wound up being like close to 14 weeks. So the logistics behind all that was was a bitch. Yeah, crazy from the get-go. We couldn't afford to buy 400,000 pre-printed cans to get a decent rate. We had nowhere to store them. Our little building is maybe 5,000 square feet and we've got it packed full of a bunch of shit. So we, we didn't have no room to stick that. So the logistics of that wasn't going to work for us. So last year, my family, and I, I put a little of this on me because I got to the point where I had, I had, my family had struggled financially. You know, uh, I mean, I'm older and I'd retired once, but I still had a wife and I had a special needs kid at home. So my wife was working her ass off. I was up here working my ass off and there just wasn't anything to show for it. You know, <laughs> people telling you you make great beer and have a good time is, is great, but that shit don't pay the bills. Don't pay the bills. So, yeah. At some point in time, I was like, Fuck, I got to get a job. I hired a guy. I hired, I hired a, a good guy. A guy, Sean Boss, is our brewer. He's retired Air Force guy, had never brewed before at all. So he didn't have any bad habits for me to break. So I got him in here and, and kind of showed him my way of brewing. And, you know, and we were focused on just the core brands, just stripper dust and local yellow. Those were the two that were mostly wanted out in the retail. And so we worked over that. I helped him brew multiple, multiple batches of that. And he got kind of robotic about that. He could come in here and he could brew, you know, he's a creative guy, but he had never brewed before. So sitting him down and letting him be creative with a beer recipe was, was, it was kind of hard. We'd work through some things and we got him to where he was brewing some other things for the bulk of it. He was just coming in here and he was just brewing local yellow stripper dust. And so I stepped away. And so I wasn't here day to day operations. Well, then some things kind of went away. You know, we, we lose the tap room sales because we're not putting anything new on tap. And that it's as much as I hate to say it, that's kind of a thing. People get tired of coming to a brewery and food trucks was a big loss for us. Is we didn't have a place to put a kitchen. James and them were able to kind of go in and put a little small kitchen and do their own thing. And Grain Theory now has a kitchen, but we had no spot. We were we were small and everything we had was taken up. So we relied on food trucks to have food for people. And then the city of Abilene came in. When we first started, they had no food trucks. There was like two and they were here all the time because they liked what we were doing and 
this was a cool place and it was always busy and they could kind of expand and, and several of those have gone on to open up brick and mortar restaurants and things but went to ha- from having two or three food trucks to 30 food trucks we were booked up six months in a row every saturday for a long long time well then city of Abilene comes in and says hey we need a piece of that food truck pie and so they start putting extra requirements on them they start taxing them more a lot of those food trucks went away and then we get to the point where we got no food trucks again we couldn't keep them here. COVID kicked them in the ass. After that, a lot of them went away and never came back. We didn't have options for food. We, you know, we had to get our restaurant license. We did that thing where we got an air fryer and some cheese sticks, and we were able to kind of stay open for a little while there during COVID. So, but that was not a sustainable food model, you know. And then the food truck loss. That with the cost of everything going up going forward and kind of where we're at now, it would be hard for us to maintain our business model and not have to sell a $20 six pack of beer, which people aren't going to buy, you know, because mm-hmm. profitability is, is important if you want to stay open. But from a business perspective, me selling you beer that you can afford and me not making any money is kind of wasting my time. Right. So, and that's where we were getting to the point where in order to make it profitable for us, you wouldn't want to buy it because it costs too much. During this time, were you having to put in more capital? Was it like still sucking money. Mine did. I had these multiple times where you know, yeah. in the beginning it was kind of fun. Like, oh, we're going to spend 50K and we're going to buy a shit ton of kegs or we're expanding into this market. So yeah. we need to put in money. But then at the end, my wife and I would have some massive arguments about it. And in her defense, she was absolutely right. I should not have done it. But how did that look for you? <laughs> yeah. 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 Yes. She, she won that really. And in, in hindsight, she won. But yeah, we did. We won. Matter of fact, I think two months ago, I paid the electric bill. One of my partners paid the gas bill. Another one paid the insurance, you know, that kind of thing. So that's when you that's when you see the writing on the wall. We actually met up here on New Year's Eve and we stood here at the bar talking about finances. And we thought, OK, we conceivably could go to the bank. We, we have great credit history now. We, we've got a business that we could probably get a loan. But then we kept saying, what is that going to do? Is that going to postpone the inevitable? And are we just going to be stuck with that at the back end where we can't pay that and then we have to file for bankruptcy. I said, right now, we don't owe anything to anybody except for a few small vendors we owe some money to, which once we sell, we'll take care of all that. But right now, we can walk away from this thing, like James says, with with a good experience and not a whole shit ton of debt. You know, we'll, we'll owe a little bit of money, but we'll hopefully we're negotiating a sale as we speak. And if it goes the way we hope, then uh, we'll be able to make our little investors uh, some of their money back and pay the people off that we need to pay off and no harm, no foul kind of thing. Going forward, we don't know if we could have been in this position anymore, especially if we have to take out a loan and, and go deeper into debt to keep this thing going. And the thought of just kind of hovering where we've been for the last couple of years was not very fun. So the only only person it, it hurts my heart for is, our, is, is Sean, our brewer. Uh, you know, he worked for us and he's he's obviously going to be out of a job. Our bartenders that, that work for us, you know, they don't have most of the time it was part time gig for them. Anyway, we weren't open enough for it to be a full time job for those guys. But, you know, they'll have to go in, find something else. And they've been with us a long time and been very loyal. So we hated that part of it. But it just made sense for us to knock it off at that point. We decided to go ahead and fold the doors down. James, what was your experience? You said that sales were bad last year, which is 
not only a subjective statement, but not specific enough for me. What do you mean by that? You had cans in the market, they had to get bought back. Did you have orders were not coming, people coming to the tasting room? What does that mean? What did it look like for you? I would say it was just like an overall dip in every area, like distribution went down, tap room sales went down. We were, I mean, busting our asses, like trying to put on events, like giving people a reason to come. People would come for events, but like the normal, like, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, just unless you had a special event, it was just the amount of people that we needed to come weren't coming. And it kind of felt like it happened a switch somewhere in 2022. Cause like 2021 was bad, but like it was bad for everybody, not for everybody, but mm-hmm. for everybody, but it wasn't that bad. 2022, it's like sometime in like April or May, it's like somebody just flipped the switch for us. And the distro went down room sales went down and every month we were just kind of like watching like the cushion that we built like just dwindle and just get smaller and smaller and smaller to where like jeff said like towards the end like we were having meetings like are we gonna have the capital we need to pay all our bills this month and there was only one month that we did it but when you've got three guys like hey how are we gonna pay this 1400 invoice right now and they're all standing around it's like well I get paid by the brewery and you guys know I don't have any fucking money. So like, I don't have it. You guys have better jobs. So like it, that fell on, on them. Cause I was like, guys, we cut my pay lower two months ago. So, you know, like I can't help. And so like that, that part kind of sucks. But like Jeff said, like for years, when you're the one who's like busting your ass for nothing for a long time, it was just like, well, this is, this is what we got to do. And then we were actually supposed to post the same day that Pappy's posted that they were closing, <laughs> we just hadn't talked to each other. And we saw their posts and we were like, hey, I don't think we can post today, guys. <laughs> like, I was like, this would be like an incredibly depressing day on social media. Two breweries in Adelaide and say, hey, we're going to shut it down. So we waited a few days. But like we said, with lease being up and sales being so bad last year uh, and now like having to bust our ass just to barely make it. This isn't worth it. You say this isn't worth it, but then we post that we're closing and hundreds of people share it and hundreds of people comment on it like, oh, we love this place. It's so awesome. We hate to see it yep. close. And we'll, yep. Will and I are texting pictures of comments. We're like, where the fuck have these people been? Like, it just yeah, doesn't you make want, any You don't want to be the asshole that, that does that. But yeah, like James <laughs> says, man, you get our initial post that we were closing wound up reaching 56,000 people. And you're like, dude, where the hell has all that been for, for two years now? But but like I said, you don't want to be that guy. Oh, the lights went off. They're working on a power line outside. <laughs> they so want to pay that bill. I'm having to scoot it up in the dark. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was going to make a joke. I thought you said you paid that electric bill. I told you we were broke. I told you we couldn't pay the bills. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good one. How did that go for you, James? Did the partners argue? Like, was there a couple guys that wanted to stay open? Or were all three white guys on board with, we got to get the out of here? No. So in the very beginning of 2022, when we were... Uh, still optimistic because we were like, oh, we didn't do as bad as we thought we'd do in 2021. We're riding this wave like 2022 is our year. COVID's done. Here we go. Let's light this firecracker. We bought our investors out. So like it became just me, Will, and Alex. Towards the end, I mean, we we never argued. It just became more and more of this is what we're going to have to do. And all of a sudden, like, man, this kind of sucks. We don't want to do that. And we're like, well, but this is what we have. This is the only the only option that makes sense. Like, could we go to the bank? Yes. But like Jeff said, is it just going to delay the inevitable? Do we want to do this for another year? And then realize, like, hey, this was always going to not work. Uh, and now we're just even more in debt. So we just decided, like, hey, 
legitimately, we can walk away from this. We should do that. We should be smart and do that. And a lot of that is Will. Like, Will is the most practical brain that exists that I've ever met. And so Will just kept hammering, what's the point? We know that we'll come out safe this way. And so he kept hammering that, hammering that, hammering that. Uh, and eventually he convinced Alex first. I'm the, the optimistic person. Like, no, we can beat this. We can do this. I have ideas. And eventually he got me. I was like, yeah, you're right. This is the smart move. Well, I can say too, from being on the outside now that it, it's much harder when you're in it, fighting to make it work. You just develop this sort of rhythm and operational pace of, I'm just going to keep doing it and put my head down. And uh, when I finally agreed that it was time to get rid of it, we were actually going to close anyways. And somebody came in and bought it four days before I would have closed the door. Wow. But in that situation now, I'm looking back and I'm like, it's just, I feel so much better about life in general than I, I, th- I thought I was happy then. I would have told you that if you'd asked me, but I'll look forward to talking to you in a year, both of you guys and seeing how much happier yeah. you are. I was always kind of, kind of like James. I was the passionate one because I was here working every day. And, and when you, it's your baby, when you're here, mm-hmm. yeah, it's your baby. When you're here and you're making it grow and you're working it, you have, you have more skin in the game and you, so it's hard to let that go. Probably had I not have already hired someone to come in and do the day-to-day operations and went back to work, I would probably still been the holdout too, you know, and I, I still mm-hmm. was kind of the last guy. But, and I think when we were having the conversation, the fact that I brought up, hey, do we just need to go ahead and shut this thing down now? I think my partners both looked at me like, what the hell are you saying? You're not the guy that does that. When you're on the outside looking in, it's a different perspective than if you're here every day and you walk in the door and all you see is positive. You see the stuff that you've done and everything that where you've come from to get to where you're at. And letting that goes hard. So, yeah, yeah, it's not well, a fun day. When you, you posted in your announcement that you're going to close that it just it seems our business model no longer works and that running the brewery has become unsustainable, which James is kind of, you, you referenced that in your closing announcement, just that it was an unsustainable market and that you guys had decided to close. So as soon as we come back from the break, I want to talk like what that means and what that means specifically for the next generation of brewers that are out there. So let's take a quick break. Be right back. Are you still paying shipping for your brewery's ingredients? That's really, really dumb considering that Brewery Direct offers free shipping on every single order. But maybe that'll work out for you. I mean, Donald Trump got elected president. Paula Abdul and Justin Bieber both had singing careers. Shaq managed to play ball real good, and Paris Hilton ended up not losing all of her family's money. But if you don't want to risk it, I'd call Brewery Direct. They've got a diverse selection of malted and unmalted grains, aseptic fruit purees, yeast, and even hops. And if you brew with adjuncts, they've got you covered on that front too. What they don't do is charge you to ship it because they don't suck. Now serving 12 states and even Canada, your brewery needs Brewery Direct. So go check them out online at brewerydirect.com or at brewerydirect at whatever social media whose algorithm you let control your habits. All right, welcome back. So talk to me what that means. I guess, Jeff, since you said it first, tell me what you mean by running the brewery has become unsustainable. And, and, and I guess let's extrapolate that out. Would that mean that you think that the model by and large is unsustainable? And if so, why? I think at the time, I had no idea that James and them were in the same situation that we were in because we obviously don't talk about that kind of thing. You know, we, we talk <laughs> about beers, we talk about other things, but we don't talk about, hey, you guys making money? No, no, we don't do that kind of thing. But when we got to the point to where we knew we could not survive with our business model, and I'm not saying that anybody else's business model is not a functional business model, but I know for sure the Pappy Slocum business model no longer works here in Avalon. 
Now, where we're at, our location, the way we do business is not conducive to making any kind of money. We could have stayed open and we could have just treaded water and continued to go and hope that something major changed. Which is what going down most breweries are doing. So in your defense, that's a viable they option, do. right? And yeah, yeah. We did it for a couple of years. Like James said, 2022 was kind of a shit year for us. Everything we own broke. And so about the time you think, okay, we may be fixing to make it over this hump. We got we got a big check from our distributor came in and then all of a sudden glycol unit shits a bed in the summertime in July. So You're fucked, we're man. yeah, we're fucked. And we're we're trying to find this one strange ass compressor that we can't find. So it's a like like a month. It's the time we're supposed to make Oktoberfest, which is one of our most popular beers. We don't get Oktoberfest made. So the market doesn't get Oktoberfest and they get pissed. Then we have our hot liquor tank. The minute we get everything fixed back up, we go to start brewing again. Hot liquor tank, the heat element, which is about a $1,000 heat element, goes out. And so brewers got to boil water in the kettle, put it in the heat, the hot liquor tank, boil another batch, get it full so we can go back in then. And that's a 15-hour day, you know. So just kind of a bunch of major errors for us that led to where we were. But I don't – I go back to I go back to what I said earlier. If you've got a shit ton of monies that you don't mind throwing in the trash can – you can make a brewery work. Which is not, to clarify, the same thing as making it profitable, but go ahead. No, no, it's not a profit, but like I said, if you got a ton of money you want to throw away, you can have fun and make a brewery. I don't know. I can't speak for James. I can't speak for Grain Theory. We've got another little brewery on the south side of town. He probably has the best business model for the long haul. A guy named Sam, uh, Sunhouse Brewery, Sam Pugh. He was assistant brewer for us for a little while, and he opened up a little brewery out in Potosi, which is a suburb of Abilene, kind of on the south side. He actually owns about five acres, house right there, has an Airbnb back there in the back. There's no mortgage on this property. Property was was heired to them by his wife's father. There's The shop that the brewery is in is actually right there on the property. So he's very, very small, tap room only thing now. He's doing a little bit of a keg distribution going forward, I think. That business model for him, he won't get rich, but he can probably make a little money, you know, because he's he set himself up in a good spot. But other than that, I don't know I don't know in Abilene how you make that kind of money. With the way land cost, all the all everything going up. 40, 50 percent at least. You know, I don't know how you make that kind of money. So for us, it just we couldn't see a way out of it. And so we kind of, we resigned the fact that we couldn't make it work. And like I said, I didn't know the situation that Sock was in uh, until after they had posted. James and I had, had kind of talked a little bit after the fact, you know, he messaged me, Hey, we've been, we've been, we've been struggling too. And we were going to announce, but you guys beat us to the punch kind of thing. So I don't know that there's a business model for Abilene that works, but I can't tell you that there's not. I haven't ran it through my brain yet. So even though when you found out that you're, you know, you guys are buddies, obviously, but main competitor in town financially is going out of business, that didn't make you go, well, maybe if I don't have them, I can still Maybe keep. we could stay. No. Yeah. Uh, I would agree no, with that, you. That, I'm just... that, <laughs> yeah, that wouldn't, that wouldn't have affected us one way or another. And competition-wise, I don't know how James feels, but we never kind of looked at it, anybody as competition. We, we kind of had a really good conducive group all the guys in town it was always we were always buddies and everybody helped each other out and stuff short a bag of this or a pint of that you know never an issue and as far as distribution goes i didn't ever think we were actually fighting for tap panels or or things like that but so i don't foresee i don't foresee anything sock not being in the picture or grain theory not being in the picture i don't think that would have ever changed what what happened to us i think it was just 
a lot of different things, but I don't think that was one of it. So James, from your perspective, you obviously mentioned that people weren't coming to the tasting room as much as they used to. Could, could that be because of Sunhouse and Green Theory? Is there somewhere else they were going or people just stopped coming in general, in your opinion? Uh, I mean, when we started noticing like our P&Ls looking not so hot in 2022, after two or three months of that, like we started putting feelers out to like other bars in the area. Like, hey, how y'all doing these last few months? And so we talked with a couple other businesses in the area and across the tracks downtown, kind of hearing the same thing. Like, yeah, we're just not hitting the numbers that we need to hit. So like, it didn't make us feel better, but we were like, okay, so like, it's not just us. Yeah. But at the same time, like I said earlier, like Abilene's a fickle bitch and they will beat the hell out of whatever's new. The city can function kind of like a swarm of locusts where they just descend on whatever's new and they beat the hell out of it and they move on to the next new thing. And like, that's great for like your first two years. But then after that, like things kind of changed. We saw that coming after running Barley Hoppers being there for when it first opened and what like normal business became. I was always pretty adamant, like, Hey, our first year numbers, the first two years numbers shouldn't like be what we expect to like sustain throughout the, the life of the business. But even outside of that, it just seems like Abilene and Journal were just going elsewhere to drink or they didn't want to spend like whatever we were charging for a pint of beer or whatever the beer costs. I mean, we were kind of in line with any other place that was serving our beer. We were like six, six bucks a pint. If it was a more expensive beer, I think we got up to eight dollars uh was our most expensive beer we ever sold so we weren't unreasonable we just couldn't figure out what it was that was causing us to have a lack of draw like constantly getting like good google reviews and it just didn't make sense it wasn't mapping out in our heads like where everyone's going but after like i said talking to other businesses we were like oh it's kind of just down everywhere and talking to our distributor like hey our distribution numbers are down is it us what's going on and they're like no we're kind of like craft is kind of down across the board right now so we just i don't know kind of took it in stride and i don't know i'm not sure appling is ready was ready to support the amount of things that it has not just breweries just things that it has now a large influx of new bars things over the past couple years and i think james hit it on the head i don't know if i think it was too much not just necessarily breweries but too many things to Mm-hmm. to stretch out the amount of people that we had. Your we never raised ways. our taproom prices at all. Throughout the whole time, you kept it the same price? Never, yeah. We were $5 a pint. If it was a, a beer over 7%, we poured it in a smaller pour, but it was still $5 a pint. So probably not the best business model there either. But yeah, but everybody, you know, that was, you know, when people would come in, they'd say, man, I can't believe this and this, this and this. Well, we never did either. But then, you know, we thought we'd make it up for it on the other end, but apparently it never happened, but. Well, I was surprised when I looked up when you opened, the population was somewhere around 216, 121,000, and now it's 125,000. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you just really haven't had that much growth. And considering, you know, I live in New Braunfels, it's been obscene, you know, two hours away from right. me, two and a half hours away from you. So, I'm sure that makes it hard. You have a bunch of new breweries, a bunch of new restaurants, a bunch of new bars, and just not a bunch of new people. Yep. So, where do they go? Seems like every other Evelyn. city, like major city in Texas, is growing at like a 20% growth rate. Except for Abilene. <laughs> Why do you think that is? We, I don't, I don't know. We've, you know, we have three major colleges here. Uh, we have a, an Air Force base, which is one of the largest Air Force bases around. It's one of the homes of the B-1 bomber, and so there's always people in and out. A lot of turnover. You know, we have a lot of people come from Dias, leave, <laughs> come back, get new crews in. For the most part, there's nothing really else here. So there's no major industry. A lot of farmland, a lot of cattle land. So you, you've got old money, but 
There's not a lot of new businesses to grow and bring in people to come in to go be here and be employed and move in here and stay. It's kind of been the same, roughly the same size fluctuation within three or 4,000 people either side of uh, 120,000, you know, for past 25 years, you know. I'm sure that makes it hard too because crap beer is kind of a new generational thing. So you'd kind of want to see some growth yeah. and some new folks coming in. I get it. Uh, you, you can't you can't control the landscape. It is what it is. I guess the obvious question, if somebody were to ask you if opening a brewery in Abilene is a smart idea, what would you tell them? What would you tell them to look out for? Like what is there a pathway to profitability? And now that you're an expert after both of you guys spending time in the industry, would now you know what, what works and what doesn't, right? I guess if failing is something makes you an expert, I guess we are. But my wife tells me we didn't fail. She tells me we just didn't completely succeed. So I, if that makes me feel better, I guess I, I, I feel it. But, you know, like I said earlier, I don't see a, I don't see a road to profitability for a brewery. I got an old mind. Maybe if somebody with a new mind, a young mind like James could come in and James come up with a guy. different plan, you probably could figure it out. James is the young guy. What do you got, James? Hit us with some knowledge. I think <laughs> I don't have any knowledge. I think I don't know. I think if there is a model, it's Grain Theory's model. I think they've got a really good shot at doing it. They're diversified. Their coffee, their food, their beer. They're, they have a, like a wine program over there. Because one of their investors is a big wino, so they do like wine dinners and stuff. They're they're all things to all people, and they make some pretty fucking good beer too. But also, like I think at the end of all this, and it's not like a statement to say like because of another brewery, like. We're closing just any anywhere in any city. Like when you, like if somebody's gonna if they want to say, "Hey, I want to open a brewery," I'm like, "Hey, just remember, like when you open a brewery, just remember that there's 50 other breweries out here in Dallas, and you may not mean it, but you're reaching into their pockets a little bit. Like just remember, like there there are people out there like busting their ass. Like and that goes for any business. If you're opening a coffee shop, just remember there's coffee shops already here. And can it sustain it or is it just going to divide up what's here and make it harder for all of you? Just like have that in the back of your mind. But no, I don't think, I don't see a path forward for Abilene. I wish the best, the grain theory and sign house. Like, actually, I mean, Sam's got a pretty good shot, but Sam has zero overhead, like just zero overhead. So I don't know. It's, I think Abilene is a unique situation in the first place, but also I can remember over the past two years going into breweries all over the country thinking like, how does do you make this work how do you make money i know what i'm spending on stuff and you're clearly spending way more like how are you making money yeah well, i definitely don't uh, want to uh, talk shit about sam but the, the, one of those things that i've realized is that we do a lot of that in this industry and i think restaurants and bars do too but at the end of the day he could make more money probably just renting that space to some other asshole that's renting that wanted to buy a brewery than it would actually opening his own on possibly so Yep. You know, at some point, like there's yep. a restaurant guy in San Marcos near me too. The same thing. Like his parents own the shopping center he's in. He could never afford twenty thousand dollars a month in rent that it costs. But he's got this cool, funky restaurant with you know a cool vibe and it's great. But he could never afford to be that without getting free rent in a space he could never. Yeah, afford. somebody's enabling that. Yeah, but but you guys kind of brought up a point that I like to ask everybody. In my opinion, some of why that's happening is the the crappier market share really isn't growing. And so you're, you're when you say you're taking business from existing breweries, that is absolutely true because new craft beer money is not being generated year over year. So when a new brewery opens, that same pool is being split. But my question is, do you think there's anything that the Brewers Association could have or should have done when you were starting that might have set you up for better success? Or is there anything that they could have done towards the end to help, you know, when you started to struggle to maybe pivot in different ways. Currently, they don't do anything in that regard to try to help 
So I'm just curious if you think there's anything there. I don't know about the Brewery Association. I probably should have listened to Chip McElroy. I had a conversation with him one day on the phone from Live Oaks before they ever started packaging. And somebody had given me his number and said, hey, call this guy. And we'd gone to Austin, spent some time down there. The guys at Austin Beer Works and all that, they were super, super great guys. You know, we weren't going to be in their market. So we weren't going to be any form of threat to those guys in any way, form or fashion. So talked to those guys and they said, here, talk to Chip. Chip's been in the business longer than anybody else, you know. So called Chip. Chip's got his headphones on and he's cleaning kegs whenever I'm talking to him. And I was like, dude, you've been you've owned this brewery for like 12 fucking years and you're already out there still hustling, cleaning kegs. And he goes, shit don't get done unless Chip does it. I said, what do you think? He goes, I wouldn't fucking open a brewery today. He goes, if it was me, he goes, I'd say fuck it. And he goes, spend your money on something else. And I was like, damn, I didn't want to hear that, you know. But he turned it around and said, well, our circumstances is different. This is where we're at, you know. If I was having to do it over again, I wouldn't do it over again. But you may be different, but he kind of gave me the he gave me the lift up at the end after he'd already kicked me in the balls, you know. But yeah, well, I'm sure he felt a little he, bad. He was brutally honest, though. He was like, "Man, he goes, I'm I've been doing this for a long time, and you hear I'm still in here having to work and do this, this, and this, and we don't even package beer yet. That wasn't even something that they had always said that they weren't going to do, and mm-hmm. it became." necessary and now they do a whole bunch of it but yeah so brewer association they 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 are there for what they are they're more of a political entity i feel than anything they they work with PACs and try to get things done legislative wise maybe but i don't know that they do a lot of day-to-day things for breweries that are in trouble or provide any kind of service for that now james is probably a little more into that like i said he's younger than me he's a little more into that maybe than i was any opinions on that, James? Not the young part. We all know you're young. That's a fact. Well, I've been the CBC for the past three years, and I think the Brewers Association could be a little bit more honest about the state of the craft beer industry. Because, like, you're there, and they're just hyping it up, and everything's great. Craft beer is still, like, trucking along, and they're kind of, like, blushing these numbers a little bit and talking about what they want to talk about and not what needs to be talked about. And it's like you said, that craft beer isn't growing. We're not getting new drinkers. It just is what it is. But, like, you don't hear that at CBC. You don't hear that from the Brewers Association. All that. And if you do hear it, it's at the bottom of an email behind a whole bunch of new exciting hops kind of articles and stuff like that. So they're just not open and honest about, like, the state of the craft beer industry. And I think a lot of people who are opening breweries today do not understand the state of the craft beer industry. And all they see is hype breweries pumping out hazy IPAs and people lining up to pay $20 a four pack for it. So they must be raking it in when really they're the same as all of us. They're just buried in hot contracts and have to charge $20 a four pack. And I don't know how that's sustainable at all in the long term. At some point, people have to say, I think I'm just not going to pay $20 for four beers. Well, I think they do in a lot of markets. Maybe it's not all of yeah. them. But I do think there's a lot the Brewers Association can do. And I mean, my whole plan over the next few seasons to kind of flesh out what that is and hopefully encourage them to do that. At the very least, temper the... When, when Bart Watson comes out with the annual report, there's always all these numbers that... I can go back and show you why they're bad, but his ultimate thing at the end is, oh, the industry's growing and it looks good. It's going to be a struggle, but overall it's going to be good. And, yeah. I, and I think the two of you guys sitting here, you're coming out fairly unscathed, but at the end of the day, if there's something that we could do to make sure that either A, you stay in business, or B, that you maybe think more deeply about doing it before you get into it, I just think that it's incumbent on us to do that. I mean, I guess share the wealth, share the knowledge. Right. I also think that 
Jeff and I are kind of the exception because both of us opened our breweries for when I tell other brewery owners what we opened our brewery for, which was I think right at 125k. When I tell them that that's all we spent to open, they're like, "How the fuck did you do that?" I'm like, well, we're pretty ingenuitive people, and I've got a partner who can build damn near anything if I need them to. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, like you talk to some of these other brewery owners, and they're just I mean, hundreds and hundreds of thousand dollars in debt because they built this building and bought Prospero equipment because it's the best in the industry. And like, they're just, just buried in it. Like closing has made me think more about those guys who are struggling. Like, man, like when they shut all this down, like they're fucked for a while. That's what sucks to think about is I know that Jeff and I are the only two in Texas that are struggling like this because I called my buddy over at Pathfinder Brewing the other day and I told him I was going to be passing through town. He's like, nah, man, we're closed. <laughs> and I was like, what? He's like, yeah, we closed in December. And I was like, we're closing. He was, and he's like, yeah, I, I saw Pappy's and you were closing too. And so it just seemed like it's way more prevalent <laughs> than the industry yeah. wants to talk about, but it's happening. Yeah, well, so there's another piece too. I was actually telling somebody this last week that I had gone online and and, and obviously part of my job is to look and see who's opening, who's closing. And in Texas alone, I've got a pretty good handle on the market. There were six breweries I found last week that either just opened or were about to open that I'd never fucking heard of. And so the growth is still happening. And that's like, we're at this record number of, you know, three times the pre-prohibition record of number of breweries in the United States and 500 to a thousand are opening every year. It seems like, do you guys see like almost 10,000 now? Mm -hmm. Do you guys see like a number? Is it in your opinion? Is there a too many? I think we're pretty damn close. (laughs) Pretty saturated, I think. Yeah, no, I would agree. You know, it's, it's nice to be able to go out of town and, and not have to search for our brewery because we used to have to do that all the time. Whenever we were doing in the 90s when I got out of the military and I was kind of into this craft beer thing and it wasn't so much a thing, we had to drive to far deep Dallas. We had to drive to Austin. You know, there might have been a little cheesy one up in Lubbock back in those days. But other than that, you had to drive hundreds of miles to go to a craft brewery here in Texas. Now you can throw a rock and hit one now, but you may or may not get good beer. Just depends. You know, I think the market's saturated and anybody can open a brewery these days for a minute anyway. So whether they make good beer or don't make good beer, I don't think they ever take that into consideration sometimes, you know. No, it's all about packaging now. Yeah, and having it be obnoxious cartoon packaging more so too. Well, so there's a question I ask everybody. I'm not going to let you guys off the hook. James, I'll ask you first. How has working in this industry affected your relationship to alcohol? And I'll preface that <laughs> by saying that I drank way too much, especially when it got stressful at the end. I drank even more. And now I've kind of a year and a half later gotten past it, which is great. But what, how has it affected your relationship to alcohol? I've always been a beer drinker. I would say that, that there were times where, you know, things are like stressful and you're finishing up for the day at the brewery and you're just like, you know what? I need to go home. Like, But instead, I'm just going to sit here at this bar where I have beer and I'm just going to have a couple of beers because I just need to relax for a minute. So I don't I don't think it like like negatively affected it but i definitely did drink more especially like when things were good you're always at the brewery hanging out with friends having beers and you don't think about because you're work mm-hmm. <laughs> um, just sampling at that point it's my job <laughs> so it probably did cause me to drink more but i don't know not in like a negative way i guess well jeff as the the old responsible one what, what's your answer on this one yeah, I I always drank beer. I'm like James. I've always been a beer drinker. That's kind of been my drink of choice. And then got into craft beer and then owned a craft brewery and started off. I drank a lot of beer up here and then got to where we started making more and more beer. And I, as I was making beer, I didn't drink beer because I would fuck shit up. So I would make beer 
drink beer at the very end of the day. And then I got to where I was around beer all day, every day, and I fucking couldn't stand. It. So I drank a lot of bourbon. So kind of feeling like I can drink craft beer a little bit more now. I don't think it adversely affects, you know, I still, I have the ability to go days without drinking anything. So it's not like I'm hooked on something or I have to have it, but it's sure easy to when you got a whole bunch of it sitting right behind you. It is. It, it, it's pretty easy to pull a tap and have a beer whenever you want to. Sometimes probably even inappropriate times of the day, but hey, who cares? <laughs> Well, when you work there, there's not an appropriate time. You have to literally sample beer at 8 in the That's morning right. to make sure. Yeah. You're, you're it's like, quality control, yeah. and you're supposed, exactly. to, you're supposed to do yeah. it better in the morning, right? Yeah, before your palate <laughs> gets fucked up. Like, I get it. Well, so we're going to wrap this up, but I want to – What, Jeff, let's start with you. What do you want people to remember about Pappy Slocum? What What is the overarching kind of like the, the history and what it stood for and, and what you want to write into the record books? I, I think – it's kind of like kind of attending your own funeral and being able to see things and hear things, you know, because when you announce your closing, people come out of the woodwork and they tell you all the great things that you've accomplished. It's, it's bittersweet, you know, uh, you know, and you think you've done a good thing for a community. And, and I know I've done something good for myself. I, I feel good about what I've done, what we have accomplished. Seeing James, seeing Grain Theory guys, seeing Sam, seeing all those breweries that have come after us and, and how they're passionate about what's going on and feel maybe a little bit like we had a little bit that with that, you know, just because we were we were the kind of the first ones to actually give it a really good go here in Abilene. So I'm really, really I want people to think back to the days when they would come here and hang out. And it was like sitting in, in their own backyard with a bunch of their friends. So it wasn't like we people came here to go to a business to to pay for beer and and just hang out it's more like it's my time to go to jeff's house and sit in his backyard and we're gonna we're gonna eat food and we're gonna have beer and we're gonna listen to music we're just gonna hang out all day it's fun made a lot of good friends here a lot of lifelong friends that i would never have otherwise overall a good experience uh the hardship does not outweigh all the beauty that that has come from from being pappy slocum in my mind good that's cool. James, what about you? What's the legacy that is Sockdolger? What the hell is a Sockdolger? You got to tell me that first. <laughs> it's a 1920s term. It's where we get the phrase sock him in the mouth. Mm. Uh, it was the, the last punch in a boxing match was called the Sockdolger punch. Mm. And there's a whole stupid story about how we even got to that name, which is another thing to tell up and coming brewer and just pick a name that makes fucking sense like that people can pronounce <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i legacy i know you're still in it so you're just a little different situation because you guys still have what I, two weeks before you close three weeks. i think for me personally i don't want to speak for will or alex but when we opened we were in this like wave of like young entrepreneurs in abilene deciding hey we could do that here we don't have to drive to dallas or fort worth or austin to have these things and so like around the time we were opening like this place called Vagabond Pizza opened a brick and mortar and they were super cool one of my friends opened like a really like cool barbershop we just had a bunch of young people opening small businesses and kind of changing out of uh, Abilene for the better Abbey House Public House places like that and saying like no like we can make Abilene cool and for me like I'm just I'm glad I got to be a part of all that and that time when they're legitimately was nothing to do in Abilene and now like this wave of young entrepreneurs and a lot of them are still going have made Abilene a place that you want to hang out at like it's like there's stuff to do here now there's stuff to see there's good food there's good drink like it's just 
Abilene's changed a lot because of that, and I'm just glad that I got to be a part of it. Yeah, well, that's cool. Kind of re- reshaping the town in a positive way. Well, cool. I, I really appreciate you guys sharing it. And obviously, this is the first time I've done a collaboration interview. Probably won't be the last. It was really interesting just to sort of see how the two of you guys work together. I can't tell you for my money. I'm super disappointed that it ended the way that it did. But obviously, it sounds like you guys are leaving better than you were when you started. So that's a positive and that's a win. So I really appreciate you guys sharing that with everybody. And I uh, wish you all the best, for sure. No problem. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks, guys. Thanks for hanging in, dudes and dudettes. I truly hope this podcast adds value to your life as much as to your career. I hope it's opened your eyes, your heart, and even your mind. I hope you're readied and steadied for the rocky road that lies ahead of you. By now you know you're gonna need some salt in your margarita if you hope to have enough grit to finish the round. So here's to double salting the rim of life, motherfuckers. I mentioned earlier the book I wrote in 2019 and revised the hell out of 2020. It is 55,000 words available on Amazon and a fantastic way to support the show. You can also share your favorite episode with friends and foes. That shit helps way more than you might know. Plus, every purchase you make from one of my sponsors directly helps keep me in business. And if you're feeling really squirrely, there's a link in the show notes for how to support the show with a direct donation. But most of all, I appreciate your support by coming back, learning something valuable, and spreading the message to the rest of the world. You are part of the craft beer revolution that will keep the business part strong enough to keep the fermentation part flowing. And I, for one, love the absolute fuck out of each of you. So thanks for being a listener, and I look forward to meeting you all one day. Free play. Media. Media.